Golgotha stood across with my Lord raised to the sky and all who kneel there live forever as all the saved can testify. I'm so glad to be called a Christian, to be named with the ransom and whole. As the statue liberates the two things I'm going to say. You may not like it. That's all right. First of all, let me say this. You know, <clears throat> I've been out in public with my wife before and, you know, have my arm around her, hold her hand, and especially maybe a number of years ago when we were a little younger, and people would say, <clears throat> man, you're a lucky guy. You're a lucky guy. I'd say, <clears throat> I'd say, yeah, you're right. I'm a lucky guy. I was proud that I had her on my arm, uh, under my arm. I was proud that we was holding hands. I was proud that she was, that, that she was mine and I was hers. <clears throat> I, I was proud because they wanted what I had. Can I tell you that as Americans, you, we ought to be proud of our country. Amen. Do you realize how many people want what we have? <clears throat> I know that recently, in recent history, it seems that some of our politicians and others are apologizing for being Americans. I'm going to tell you something. I don't apologize when I'm overseas about being an American. I'm proud to be an American. Because this is the country every single person wants to come to. And I, I just thought I'd say that because we're being indoctrinated today to not have any pride in our country, that we're no better than anybody else. Let me tell you something. How come everybody wants to come here then? There's obviously something we got that they don't have. Now listen, I'm not saying that we're arrogant and prideful in that sense, but we're proud to be an American. Just like I'm proud to have my wife beside me and say, hey, this is my wife, this is my, my woman. 
And this is my country. This is my nation. I'm happy to be. I'm proud to be an American. I like the song. But then second, there's not <clears throat> one country that we ought to be more, that we should be, that we should be more proud of than the Christ that saved our soul. If anything, we ought to be proud we're Christians. We ought to be willing to proclaim that. That's more important than any citizenship on earth. We have a citizenship in heaven. I mean, this is, this is our Christ. This is our God. This is our Lord. He created us and He saved our souls. And we ought to be proud of Him and we ought to share Him with others. We ought to be very grateful and say, man, He is my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my God and I'm proud of that. Amen. Now, again, it's not an arrogant pride, but it's a pride. Hey, me and Him, we're, we're together here. I'm on his team. And listen, when we're out in public, if we're ashamed of him, that's not what he expects. That's not what he wants. He wants to be proud of him. He wants to be happy to be called a Christian. I like the song. Because I think in both cases, we ought to be proud to be an American. I think we ought to be proud to be a Christian in that sense. And somebody says, well, that's unscriptural. Well, then you write a new song that's scriptural that makes sense and says we're proud both ways. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to sympathize with you. I believe we ought to be proud of what, where we're from. I think we ought to be proud of who we're with, the Lord Jesus. And so I, I see that. I don't see that as a problem. And unfortunately, I'm just concerned about our children today, growing up in a world where we're not allowed to even say we're Americans without hanging our heads. I have a problem with that. And then we're growing up to believe you can't be proud of being a Christian without hanging your head either. It's all kind of going together, if you ask me. It seems like it's all one and the same. I'm just saying, let's be careful. Let's be careful what we're losing here because we're going to talk about some men that were willing to give their lives, women that gave their lives for freedom, <clears throat> liberty. Liberty's worth fighting for and liberty's worth dying for. Now, today, it's struggle. we struggle to pay a price for anything. We want everything for free. But let me tell you something. Freedom is not free. Liberty costs something. In June of 1776, representatives from 13 colonies that were then fighting in the revolutionary struggle considered a resolution that would declare their independence from Great Britain. On July the 2nd, the Continental Congress voted in favor of independence. It would be two days later that its delegates adopted the Declaration of Independence. Of course, that being a historic document that was drafted by Thomas Jefferson that declared the independence their independence from Great Britain. <clears throat> this is one of the most monumental documents <clears throat> of our country, our nation. And it has continued <clears throat> to forge our way of life since its inception. The signers, along with scores of other patriots, would find themselves in great jeopardy due to the fact that they did sign it. Due to the fact that they made a decision to come apart from Britain and to ultimately be independent. When the smoke cleared, however, although many had lost their lives, limbs, fortunes, and lands, their future was bright with liberty. They were free to govern as they deemed, and they were free to exercise their faith according to their conscience. <clears throat> they no longer were enslaved or in bondage to an oppressive entity. It cost something. What fueled this <clears throat> battle? What fueled this fight? Well, the longing for freedom did. 
That's what fueled their passion. That's what prompted the revolt. That's what produced the victory was their longing for freedom. They wanted independence. They wanted liberty to prevail. Today, you and I are the benefactors of the supreme sacrifices that they made. That Declaration of Independence starts off by saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think it's interesting right off the bat to note they're, we're endowed, they're endowed by their creator. That's something. They say things like, our nation wasn't founded on biblical principles. Oh no, just the creator God. I mean, are you kidding me? And notice who is the one who gives the rights, who extends the rights. It's not government that extends the rights, it's God that extends the rights. Certain unalienable rights that among them, he says, it's not, they didn't say that Thomas Jefferson, as he penned this, didn't, wasn't saying that simply it's just these simple ones. But no, there are other rights that we have as well from God, the creator. And some of them, among them are life, liberty, liberty is what? Freedom and the pursuit of happiness. Those come from God. They're extended from God to you and I, to every man whether he's white, black, yellow, whatever color he is. It doesn't matter what gender a person is. The fact is is that mankind is given some inalienable rights from God. Now, governments may suppress that and governments may withhold that and, and groups may keep us from experiencing what God intends us to experience on earth. But God himself, I believe Thomas Jefferson had it right when he said they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. They go on to say that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So government is not supposed to be a bad thing. It's supposed to be a good thing. However, there are limitations. Notice they go on to say, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends... It is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Just saying, just because you're miserable doesn't mean you change your government. That's what he's basically saying. Because guess what? History has shown people are poor and people are miserable. It's just you're going to have the poor with you always, Jesus said. You're always going to have people who are miserable and they are going to agree with government. However, that's not the only thing. But hold on. They go on to now say... But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, invinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient suffrage of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government." They would go on to list 27 grievances that they had. 
27 areas that they said that government was oppressing them and keeping them from prospering and experiencing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from. They listed them, and then they said, all right, we're going to have to make a decision. Are we going to sign this declaration? Are we going to institute this declaration? Are we going to separate ourselves from this oppressive government that has continued to oppress us in this sense? 27 different things they list. And ultimately, we have the signers of the Declaration of Independence. In 1776, obviously, July the 4th, it was ratified. It was completely done. Now, June the 2nd is when it was actually, as it puts it here, uh, voted in favor of. It was official on the 4th. It's interesting to note that John Adams, he believed that July 2nd was the correct date on which to celebrate the birth of American independence. And so it was reported that he would turn down invitations to appear at July 4th events in protest. <laughs> he wouldn't even go to them. Adams and, Tom and Thomas Jefferson both, this is an interesting fact, both Adams and Thomas Jefferson died on July the 4th 1826, 50th, on the 50th anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. Isn't that something? That's interesting, isn't it? This morning, what I want to do, though, is I want to note the parallel between a nation and its struggle for liberty and ours as individuals today, just for a few minutes. I want to do that. Some of you are getting really nervous, I could tell. You thought I was going to go off on a, a rant to overthrow our government, didn't you? <laughs> no, I'm not there yet. You might be, but I'm not there yet. <clears throat> Got enough work to do to win the world, let alone change our government right now. But I do think we need to get out and vote, and we need to be very careful what we're doing there. But nonetheless, the fact is, is that there was a battle that took place. There was a war that took place. Why? Because of liberty. Like I said earlier, their, it fueled their passion. It prompted their revolt. It, it produced a victory ultimately. Why? Because they wanted and they longed for freedom. Boy, I'll tell you what, there's a parallel here between a nation and individuals. And I want to share just a few minutes that parallel. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for the opportunity that we have to gather today. Lord, you're good to us. And we are grateful, Father, for your, just your uh, desire to, to be with us, to be in us. And, Lord, you, you, you went to Calvary. You died for our sin. You rose again. You've... Father, been so good to each and every one of us if we know you and love you. And even if we have yet to trust you as Savior and Lord, you've been good to us. Bless us today in this time, Father, these next few minutes, as we consider a parallel between a nation that fought for freedom and the freedom that we as individuals need and, 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 and the freedom that's been purchased and bought on our behalf. We love you, Lord, and we need you. And if there be any that are lost without Christ, may they be saved and Lord, if we as believers, may we be very clear in what our objective and our goals are from this point forward. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So first of all, I want to note this from three perspectives. One, the grievous tyrant. And that grievous tyrant is none other than Satan himself. <clears throat> now, the early, uh, the, the forefathers would have looked to the king of Great Britain and said, now there's the tyrant. But for you and I today, and, and every American and, and in the spiritual realm, the great tyrant or the grievous tyrant is none other than Satan himself. He is a harsh taskmaster. This taskmaster promises you and I the world, but he'll steal your life from you. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus made a statement. He said, 
Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's what Jesus said. You say, well, what's that have to do with anything? Well, I want you to know that Jesus isn't the only one fishing for men. He's not the only one fishing. I want you to know that Satan is fishing as well. And and I want you to know he's a master of it. And he knows exactly what bait to use. If you talk to any fisherman, it's important that they, they'll they'll tell you it's important what bait you use. That'll determine what you catch many times or or how effectively you catch. But the fact is, is that you have to have the right bait for the right job. And let me tell you, Satan is a good fisherman and he has some tremendous bait and it is extremely successful. The devil puts the world at the end of the hook. He showcases the very best that he has to offer. And at best, what he has to offer is temporal. Then he dangles it before our eyes and he tempts us with the world. He's willing to give a little in order to gain a lot. His is a bait and switch. He is the greatest of all bait and switch artists even. I mean, it would seem that what we're receiving is so wonderful, but it's not. He baits us with such promises as worldly pleasure, prosperity, possessions, position, preeminence. All of those things are viewed as byproducts of success in our world today. And that's exactly what Satan will give us in a a sense. That's what he'll bait us with. That's what he'll trap us with. That's what he puts on the end of every single hook. We can all point to celebrities that, or pro athletes even, that have seemed to have had it all, but found themselves penniless and broken. Let me tell you something. The truth is this. If you enjoyed the benefit of fame and fortune your entire life, I mean your entire life, you're in for a sad end, friend. If this is where it ends, if this is where it all comes to a head, if this is the last hurrah, then it's a sad end indeed. Jesus, he poses a most intriguing and very thought-provoking question over in the book of Mark. Look, if you would, in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. We have read these verses, I'm sure. You may have heard them before, but I don't know that we really understand the depth of them or that we really internalize these questions, that we really think about them from our perspective and how they truly apply to us practically. Notice what it says here. Jesus is speaking once again, and he poses this amazing, most thought-provoking question. He says in Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 37, For what shall it profit a man... If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What a, what a thought-provoking question. What's the price for your soul? What will you sell your soul out for? What will you go to hell for? Will it be worldly pleasure? Will it be the pursuit of prosperity? Will it be possessions or position? Possibly preeminence? Will it be a friend? Will it be a wife? Will it be a husband? Will you sell your soul to Satan for that? What price do you have? What's your price? Satan puts those things on the end of a hook and he says, All right, go ahead and bite. 
Come on now. There it is. It looks good, doesn't it? And it is good, it seems. And sometimes it is pleasurable. And yes, indeed, there's pleasure in sin for a season. But may I say, He does not tell you there's a payday ahead. <clears throat> the fact is that most people sell their soul to Satan for far less than mega stardom or delirious wealth. It's funny to me. We'll look at young men young ladies that go into professional athletic, you know, join athletic teams, whether it's basketball or, or whatever it might be. And we, we say, man, look at how much money they've got. Wow, it would be so tempting, so difficult. It would be so easy even to love the world, to fall into that trap. It would be hard to live for God. So what's our excuse? What's our excuse? I don't see anybody in here that's a millionaire. I don't see anybody in here that's got women on every shoulder. I don't see anybody in here that's got money in the bank and nice cars sitting out in the driveway and a, a beautiful mansion that they go home to every evening. I don't see one person here like that. So what's our excuse? Why is it that we are so easily tempted and even hooked? And look at the world today. Think about your neighbors that are lost maybe without Christ even. I don't, they don't have mega millions. They don't have anything and everything their hearts desire. That's why the Lord says, what, For what shall it profit a man, first of all, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? But on the other hand, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? See, we don't require the whole world. It's too many times we'll accept so little from Satan in order to give him our soul. I just want you to know Satan can't be trusted. I want you to know he's dishonest. I want you to know he's a liar. I want you to know that, that he wants nothing good for you. He is a grievous tyrant. He is a harsh taskmaster. You say, I don't want to serve Jesus. I don't want to get involved in the Lord's work. I don't want to be a child of God because I want to enjoy life. Let me tell you something. You have been deceived, my friend. You are serving a harsh taskmaster. And let me tell you, payday's coming. Number two, though, we note the grievous taskmaster, uh, tyrant, which was Satan. But note the glorious truth, salvation. You know that the, the early patriots, they decided to uh, ratify this document. And when they did, they knew they were in for a long battle. They had already begun to fight. There was already battles taking place. But now it was on for sure. There was no surrender let me tell you something. There was a tremendous battle that took place 2,000 years ago. And without that battle taking place, and without the loss of life, without the shedding of blood, without broken bodies, and without lost futures and dreams in a sense, let me tell you something. There would be no salvation. Being held captive by Satan and in bondage to sin, we were in need of rescue. Deliverance and liberty. In 2 Timothy, turn if you would please, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 26. <clears throat> I want you to realize that literally we are held captive by Satan. You know, we, we have this invisible warfare that takes place about us all the time. It's so difficult for us to wrap our minds around it because we can't see it. We don't hear it. We don't 
in a sense, touch it in one sense. But, but the reality is that there is a warfare taking place. And the truth is, is, as human beings today, as being part of mankind, being born into this world we live in, we are captured, we are held captive by none other than Satan himself. Notice what it says in 2 Timothy 2.26, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Now listen, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy, of course, his protege in the faith, his son in the faith. But let me tell you, God's giving a message to his church and to his people. And by the way, like I told the singles today, you aren't just a member of a church, you are the church. You get, you get that? When you read about the church in the Bible and about what God expects and demands of the church, do you realize He demands it of you then? When He tells the church to reach the world with the gospel, He demands it of you. He wants you to reach the gospel, to take the gospel to the world and reach the world with it. You say, well, I can't do that. The church has to do that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. See, you've just, you've just taken yourself out of Scripture now, and now you're saying, I'm just part of, I'm a member of. No, you are the church. This is not just some place you attend. It's, some, it's you are it. And today as he speaks, he says, listen, before you were part of that church, you were part of Satan's captive audience. And he says that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. See, the Bible clearly describes mankind as being trapped. He says a snare here. It's a trap. And taken captive by Satan at his will. See, we're captive. We're controlled. We're in custody of Satan. His will is being exerted upon us and over us before we come to Christ. We have no other thing but him to follow and to lead. He oppresses us and he, he demands of us and he requires of us. It's his will that we must conform to. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Because of all of that, we were unable to serve the Savior, but instead were servants of sin. But 2,000 years ago, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He bore the sin of the world in His own body on the tree. He literally became sin for us. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, look there if you would please. Titus 2.14. <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, verse 14. The Bible says, Who gave himself for us. I, I, I'm sure you, you probably know who he's talking about here. It's talking about Christ himself. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Notice, to redeem us from all iniquity. To redeem us. To buy us back. To purchase us out of the clutches of Satan and sin. We needed to be bought back. Hey, listen, it costs something. It costs blood and it costs sacrifice. 
It wasn't my blood and it wasn't yours. It was Jesus Christ's blood. It was His sacrifice on Calvary that paid the price for my freedom. We never had any hope of escaping the penalty of sin or overcoming the influence and injury that Satan brought. But now we're redeemed. We're bought back. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Look there if you would please. Ephesians. Go backwards, just a few books. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ, you're out of Christ. If you're not in Him, you're not alive. You're dead in your sin. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace. See, salvation saves us from the prison of sin. It saves us from the penalty of sin. And it saves us from the power of sin. Instead of bondage today, we are blessed with peace and freedom. We have liberty today. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Prior to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, prior to the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we were under the bondage of law. We had to follow the law. But today in Christ, we are saved by faith, grace through faith. It's simple. Salvation is simply crying out to God, recognizing our sin, inviting Him into our life, knowing and placing Him on the throne of our life, saying, I cannot do this without you. Salvation is of the Lord. So we're no longer bound to fear a hopeless eternity. And Satan is no longer our taskmaster. We have a new head, and that's Jesus Christ. We have a new authority. We're free indeed. We're not bound by the law or a need to keep it in order to be saved. And therefore, we're no longer subject to sin in us or around us. So we noted the grievous tyrant, the glorious truth, salvation. But now note the gratifying treasure, sanctification. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Those patriots feeling the oppression of a nation upon them, a king that was determined to dictate without regard to their personal needs and happiness. These patriots finally said, enough's enough. We are not going to take it anymore. We believe God's given us some inalienable rights and we can pursue those rights and we are going to separate ourselves. We're going to make this declaration and we are going to be free at whatever it, for whatever, with whatever it costs, whatever it takes, at any price. 
And so they paid that price. They shed their blood. They battled and fought till ultimately they were victorious. And then, because they fought the battle, because they found the freedom that they sought, there was a treasure there for them. A freedom. And by the way, liberty is the treasure. Don't lose sight of how precious freedom is. The next time you willingly give up a a right, the next time you allow your government to say, we're going to take away your rights to protect you, you think about what you're really giving up. You be real careful. Be very careful. Freedom was what they fought for. They did not fight so that they could be financially prosperous. Now, that was an end result of freedom. And they found prosperity as a nation. But they were fighting because they did not want someone else telling them how to run things and how to rule themselves and how that they, in, in holding them back from being, enjoying the comforts and the privilege of being free. Freedom itself costs something. But it's worth fighting for. Now notice, it's worth sacrificing for. But the gratifying treasure for us is sanctification. Because in the end, we're going to see that we are free now to do some things that we could not do. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Notice that sanctified. That means to be made holy, consecrated, set apart for sacred service. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, the Bible says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're sanctified. We're set apart for holy, sacred service once for all. You say, what's he getting at? Well, as a child of God, he's basically saying we are blessed to experience a few things. One, life. That's eternal life. Two, liberty. That is freedom to live on behalf of Christ, to freely worship, to freely praise, to freely honor, and to freely serve the Lord. See, you could not, nor could I, truly serve Christ and please God while we were in Satan's clutches, while we were still captive to him, the adversary. We couldn't do that. No matter how much you wanted to please God, no matter how much you wanted to to serve the Lord, you could not do it in your flesh. You could not do it outside of Christ Himself. The fact is is that you received liberty that day when you trusted Christ and you were sanctified forever, once for all, set apart to serve God. Now you're able to please God. And now you're able to serve God. And now you're able to live on behalf of Christ. And now you can maintain the Bible and the Word of God. And you can live up to the standard that God sets before you. Before that, all you could do was sin. And now you can serve Him. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What happened to verse 10? Where's it gone? It hasn't gone anywhere. It's still in the Word of God. And yet it seems to me that we want to revel in the grace. And we want to enjoy the freedom. Well, then let's start exercising the freedom. God didn't make us free so that we could sit on the sidelines and drink pina coladas. He made us free so that we could serve Him, so that we could honor Him, so that we could do the good works that He's described and outlined in His book. We couldn't do that. See, while we were once held captive and controlled by sin and Satan, now we are controlled and free to serve the living God. We're in His control. And He is a loving God. And He extends His grace and His mercy. And He allows us and enables us and empowers us to accomplish what He's called us to do. We are unable to overcome sin and live victoriously before this. But now in Christ we can. We're free to serve since being made free from the bondage of sin. And it no longer has dominion over us. See, Jesus said, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And we stop short too often. We stop with verse 9. 8 and 9. Well, I'm free from sin and the consequences of sin. Praise God. But he goes on to say, You're free to serve me now. You're free to please me and you're free to honor me and you're free to praise me. Do you realize that the founding fathers recognized this freedom? Do you realize that they made sure that no one could keep you from exercising your conscience concerning faith? Do you realize they died for that? They shed their blood for that? This ridiculous attitude toward the separation of church and state that has prevailed in our country, is it, it has no founding whatsoever in the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that you can't have God here or God there. Without the God that began this nation, we do not have a nation. And we are quickly retreating from that God. And as we retreat as a nation from that God... And you can do, say whatever you want, but as long as we continue to try to conform to the gods of other men and women that enter our nation and come to our country and appease them first, we lose what we've had. We'll no longer have greatness. You cannot please everyone. What made America great is literally God. That's why in this document, right off the bat, he's mentioned Endowed by their creator. Now listen, let me tell you something. You could have polled every single one of them and asked them, what creator are you talking about? I don't care if they were deists. I don't care if they were unsaved. doesn't matter to me what. They weren't all saved men and women. I understand this. But what I guarantee you one thing, we know what God they were talking about there. We have no doubt about that. So you shouldn't be getting political. I'm not getting political. I'm getting biblical. 
Hey, listen, God is in charge of things. And when you take the God of the Bible out of your nation, you got problems. You take him out of your schools, you got problems. You take him out of your universities, you got problems. You take him out of your homes, you got problems. And God help us, you take him out of the churches. <laughs> you really got problems. So we've seen a few things here. I don't have time to go into some of the things I wanted to share, but I'm almost done anyway. It's pretty close. The grievous tyrant, Satan. The glorious truth, sanctification. And the gratifying treasure, excuse me, the gratifying treasure, sanctification. The glorious truth was salvation. Folks, I just want you to realize today that there's an enemy today. And his name is Satan. And he is trying to oppress you. He's trying to ultimately destroy you. And I want to encourage you today to recognize him for who he is and what he does. You're in a battle. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price and won the victory already. We have to let him fight that battle. I don't know if you've been saved. I don't know if you've trusted Christ, but he did shed his blood 2,000 years ago. And he did pay for your sin and my sin. And I want you to understand that if you have yet to receive and accept him, you need to do that. Because if you have never done that, then you are not free. You're not free from the penalty of sin. You're not free to serve the Lord. You can't please Him in your flesh and in yourself. You must come to Christ and allow Him to liberate you from the clutches of Satan and from the power of sin in your life. If you'll do that today, God will reward you immensely. You'll be blessed in your life. Not because everything will go your way, but because in everything you'll have Him in the way. Boy, He's the key to everything. Have you trusted Him? Have you received Him? As a child of God, when's the last time you really thanked Him for the price He paid for your freedom, for your liberty? When's the last time you recognized it to the point where you let it change how you spoke or how you lived or where you went or what you did. God help us to live our life in view of liberty, the liberty that Christ paid for us. Father, we come to you.